Welcome to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries, a Christ-centered conversation that will encourage and inspire you to live a better life. Now let's join Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. Welcome to Hacks for Life. I'm Galen Jones, your host, and I'm here with Scott Rahi, and we've been uh, having uh, some really good conversations about the general topic of um, apologetics, and uh, Scott's been kind of sharing with me the things that have uh, persuaded him uh, that God, that there is a, a creator God, and, and uh I've I've enjoyed our our conversations, and so we're we're um, we're talking today about um, the evidence that is against evolution. Yeah. So. And again, evolution without a guiding mind behind it. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, what we finished. We talked a little bit about um, the fossil record and the incompleteness of the fossil record, and. Um, one of the things that I thought we didn't have time for last time is something that's that when I read this, I remember the book, the book that I'm going to quote from is called the science of God by Gerald Schroeder. He's an MIT physicist and he's a, I believe he's a, uh, I know he's Jewish. I'm not sure if he's a messianic Jew. I don't know if he accepts Christ or not, but I do know that he's, he's religiously oriented. He's a, he's a believer in God and he, he's written a series of books and this is the first one I read, which is really an interesting book. You know, he's a, like I say, he's a physicist. He, he speaks, you know, as a scientist. But as I read this, this really, this, you know, you have moments that you're reading stuff and you're going, I just had a profound moment. This to me was a profound moment. One of those aha. Yeah. For me, it was, it was a really profound moment. And I, you know, because of that, I grabbed, I just transcribed this whole section out of the book, just wrote it out and uh, you made it available because to me, it's the sort of thing that hopefully other people will have a similar experience. Mm -hmm. And it lines up with this idea of the incompleteness of the fossil record. And if you'll remember, one of the things that was, that I quoted last time was this idea that these, um, these forms, these animal forms appeared in their final state, like the state we see them in today, like crabs and Mm -hmm. mollusks and things like that. And you don't see like transitional forms leading up to them you mm-hmm. just see in the fossil record hey look that's a crab that's already a, it was a crab to start with right well what do we believe as a christian we believe that god created all life and he created a crab as a crab i mean that's what i believe mm-hmm. and like i say if, if evolution is what caused it and the evidence points to that fine i'll accept that god created a crab by a series of transitional steps mm-hmm. i just don't see the evidence for that right so here's what here's um this and it's, and it's it's one of those extended quotes, but I just, I just it's a really interesting story, um, and it starts with on page thirty four of uh, the Science of God. And Schroeder says uh, Charles D. Wolcott had finally reached the Burgess Pass. The adjacent valleys were five thousand feet below. Wolcott loved the Canadian Rockies. It is a spectacular country. Uh, or it is spectacular country. He was on a combined summer holiday plus field trip, packing by horse across the mountains of eastern British Columbia in search of fossils. And for fossils, the ridge connecting Mount Wapta and Mount Field near the Burgess Path was to become a very special location. The shale rocks over which Walcott was climbing were about to yield the most important fossils ever found. They were to reveal the origins of all modern life. The story of the Burgess Pass begins some 560 million years earlier when it was part of a tropical sea. 
Though charted today as a Canadian mountain 8,000 feet above sea level, a location where the first snows come in mid-September and melt only in late July, 560 million years ago the area was a layer of mud below the shallow waters of a tropical continental shelf. A limestone reef marked by, or sorry, a limestone reef marked the border of the shelf. Beyond this, the bank fell sharply to 200 meters. Shallow water plus tropical sun plus nutrients equals life, and life there was in abundance. The temperate, sunbathed waters teemed with a plethora of marine plants and animals. Soil washed from the adjacent shore continually refurbished the nutrients demanded by this vibrant community. Occasionally, the accumulated weight of mud and detritus increased beyond that which the reef face could support and the sediment broke loose. The suddenly freed mud raced down the steep, slope, or the steep bank and its silt-like flow sweeping up all in its path, wrapping the prey in an oxygen-poor shroud. The fineness of the mud was important. Normally, only hard tissues such as bone and teeth survive the burial process intact. Here, the silt captured and the anoxic environment preserved the soft outer tissues of the trapped plants and animals. Let me read that again. Here the silt captured and the anoxic environment preserved the soft outer tissues of the trapped plants and animals. The fine silt, infiltrating the animals' bodies, preserved their inner organs. In time, as layers of successive slides increased the overlying pressure, the mud metamorphosed into shale. Fossils, complete with three-dimensional impressions of their soft tissues and organs, had been formed. A unique history of life lay recorded in stone, but their bed was far from being a tranquil place of rest. The simple view of Earth's surface as stable masses of land amidst vast oceans is a fiction. Closer to the truth is a picture of continent-sized blocks of semi-rigid stone slowly drifting over hotter, more pliable silicate stone known as the lower mantle of the earth. The motion is less than a snail's pace, about one and a half centimeters per year, but geology is patient. A centimeter or so a year is enough to have changed the face of the earth many times over since it formed from a mass of stardust some 4.5 billion years ago. That tropical sea shelf was on the move toward colder climes. It was to become Western Canada. As continental places move slowly across the Earth's surface, their leading borders buckle, wrinkling much the way newly fallen snow wrinkles in advance of a plow. In time, portions of the borders are pressed under the advancing continent just as some snow slips under the plow. Those subsided rocks melt and any tale of fossils they once bore is erased. But other parts rise to form the tops of the wrinkles. These we see as the rugged mountains bordering the western coasts of North and South America. It is our good fortune that the Burgess Shale rose to form one of those wrinkles. Its precious cargo of fossils had been preserved. Walcott was a world-renowned paleontologist and the world's expert on the explosion of multicellular life that occurred in the Cambrian period 500 to 600 million years ago. Ever on the watch for new fossils, a slab of the Burgess Shale caught his experienced eye. The rock may have borne a telltale clue, parallel lines scraped onto his surface by the glacier's motion. 
10,000 years before, as the close of the last ice age, glaciers originated in the Arctic, or originating in the Arctic, had skimmed the top off of this mountain. Shale, buried for more than 500 million years, now lay exposed. Using his geologist hammer, Walcott would have wrapped the multi-layered slab on its edge. The layers separated, and there, held within, was the first imprint of a crustacean. But this was impossible. The shale was too old to contain a fossil as complex as this specimen. Some 550 million years ago, at the start of the Cambrian, the only life on Earth was the most simple of forms, one-celled bacteria, algae, protozoans, and some pancake-shaped life of uncertain definition known as, I'm going to guess here, Ediacaran fossils. There was no way evolution could have advanced life from one-celled protozoans to the complexity of this crustacean in the 20 or so million years of the Cambrian. These simply had not been, there simply had not been time for that development. Well into the 1970s, evolutionary theory assumed that an excess of 100 million years was needed for the basic body plans of advanced life to evolve from the simplicity of pre-Cambrian life. Other shell pieces yielded a variety of equally fantastic fossils. Walcott, meticulous as always, recorded their shapes in his diary. During the next decade, Walcott collected and shipped between 60 and 80,000 of these specimens to his institution in Washington, D.C. That Walcott realized he had made a major discovery is obvious from the vast number of fossils he collected. Representatives of every animal phylum, phylum, the basic anatomies of all animals alive today, were present among those half-billion-year-old specimens. These fossils re revealed an extraordinary fact. Eyes and gills, jointed limbs and intestines, sponges and worms and insects and fish, all had appeared simultaneously. They had not been a gradual evolution of simple phyla such as sponges into the more complex phyla of worms and thereon to other life forms such as insects. According to these fossils, at the most fundamental level of animal life, the phylum, or basic body plan, the dogma of classic Darwinian evolution that the simple had evolved into the more complex, that, invertebrates had, that invertebrates had evolved into vertebrates over 100 to 2 million years, 200 million years, was fantasy, not fact. Now, that's a very long quote. It's three pages whenever I read it from the book. But what did, he, what did he find? What he found was, look, Darwinian theory said you got these incredibly simple sort of single cellular, multicellular forms. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. And over time, they will evolve to these worms and crabs and right. fish and all of this mm -hmm. stuff. But what he found going back 500 million years is, yeah, they were already here. And they appeared to appear over a very brief period of time, geologically speaking. It's just like, boom, they were just put in. They just showed up. It's something that scientists today call the Cambrian explosion. Evolutionists cannot explain this. It's like, why, in this very brief period of time in history, did all animal life just appear in the form that we see it today? It seems like that's a creation event. It seems like there we see the evidence that... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and mm -hmm. he created the animals. And you know, Here it is. Boom. All of a sudden, at a specific point in geological history, you just see animals and everything just showing up. You don't see them evolving. You just see them showing up. And the form they had then is the form they have now. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it, I'm just... Um, it, it, it just blew me away when I read that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's a long quote, and, you know, somebody rewind it, and hopefully I, I, I read it properly, but it's just crazy when you think about this. Stephen Meyer, the guy that wrote The Signature in a Cell, had he's written a second book called Darwin's Doubt, and it's all about the Cambrian Explosion. I think you can go on YouTube and watch videos. They do like simulated videos of these, you know, fish and stuff like that, and kind of showing the the, you know, the I guess the mud falling on them and then becoming fossils and stuff. It's really interesting because they they don't appear to have evolved. They just appear to have been here for a while. Yeah, because you know it does. It you know to me when I think about that and reflect on it, it it's like there should be if you, if there was a crab. Yeah. And and it and it just appears in the form that we see it today. Yeah. If evolution were to happen, surely you would see like maybe one with one. I mean, You'd see some over time. Yeah. some type of yeah. evolution. But to, we don't see that to to make that happen. But we don't see that. What we see is what appears to be a creation event. Now, are are is our scientist in? pretty much agreement that they agree that the cambrian explosion happened but they don't they don't they can't explain it right i mean I can they, they're it. staying out of the god argument they're just going well, look it just you're resisting the god argument. well yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know it's it's i mean i could see where if i were a scientist i could easily go you know god or no god this is what we you know there yeah. there isn't any yeah um it doesn't look like this was done in steps that's right and that's that's why I believe that the theological implications of accepting this stuff is the reason they won't accept it. They don't want to accept it because it leads to God. It's the same reason people, skeptics, fought so hard against the Big Bang, because the conclusion was everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Well, the universe, what was the cause of the universe? And they had, you know, we've, we've already gone through all that. Right, right. It's... It's just another area, and it's an accumulating list. You know, we've got one after another, after another, after another. There are so many good reasons to believe in God and so many solid reasons to reject these alternate explanations. Again, I think it is more reasonable by far to believe in God than it is to be an atheist. And, you know, <laughs> I can't muster the I can't muster the. Uh, you know the amount of faith it takes to be an atheist. I just yeah, because can't you have to. You know, just in our conversation, Scott. You know, it's it's like I would. I I come out if if I were an unbeliever. Yeah. I would have much more, many more questions. Yeah. About this planet, what in the heck are we doing here? Right. Uh, then I, right. then I do being a believer. It's, That's it's, exactly um, right. Again, I've said this multiple times. When we've we've referenced the book, it, it's, I don't have enough faith. I don't have faith to be. In it, yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> Let me wrap up this one with in this topic area. We'll, we're done with this, um, and there's a lot more to be said here. Loads of books that are out there. I would just encourage anybody start with Stephen Meyer, um, go read Michael Denton. Um, so many good authors that are out there that just go look up the Discovery Institute. Look up the uh, Institute for Creation Research. I mean, you can even read some of the stuff that the young Earth creationists have. They've got good material out but, there. But and you do know, Scott, that most people don't read the way you do. I read hanging upside down. Yeah, from, I, no, I, I, I know. I, I mean, it, uh, for for our listeners, uh, often uh, Scott and I will have lunch or something, and if I'm, which I, I seldom, I am seldom late, but sometimes I am, and Scott will have 
his two or three books that he's got on the table that he's reading, or he'll be sitting in the car reading. Um, so it's kind of like a walking library. You, you remember the time that you went to the restaurant that I enjoy, one of the restaurants I go to, and you said, is is this, he's he here? He goes, oh, you mean the guy that always sits in the corner and yeah, reads the yeah, book? Yeah. And that's how, the, that's how they identified me. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, yeah. So, let me, so let, me, okay. let me just wrap up with this, and these are very, very brief quotes, but it's I think it's a tremendous summary of where we are. Um, there's a there's a scientist, I believe he's a scientist philosopher, his name is J.B.S. Haldane, in a book on page 209 of, of a book called Possible Worlds. Just read this, listen to this quote, because let's start with, let me explain, first of all, if we're the result of blind evolutionary processes, then these randomly occurring things, this random chance has resulted in, in us mm-hmm. with our thoughts and our, our aspirations and our beliefs and our dreams, all this. But ultimately, we're just the result of happy accidents, just mm-hmm. an accumulation of happy mm-hmm. accidents. So here's what Haldane says. Somebody said I was a sad accident. Well, I'm one of them. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Here's what Haldane said. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motion of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. So what he's saying is, <laughs> if you follow this line of evidence, it becomes self-refuting. You can't even believe what you believe, yeah, right? Yeah. C.S. Lewis said something very similar. He wrote it in, in a, uh, page 229 of a book called A Mind Awake, uh, an anthology of C.S. Lewis. Here's the quote. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, if, if let's let's take it to a whole other level. Did did Charles Darwin comment on this? Yes, Charles Darwin himself commented. And listen to what he had to say. In a letter to a friend of his named William Graham on July the 3rd, 1881, here's what he said. But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. (laughs) Would anyone trust in the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any conventions in such a mind? Even he doubted his own, if his belief is true, he's like, I don't trust my own mind. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think evolution is, it's okay to accept evolution. And there are plenty of Christians that do. It's entirely fine. We should not divide fellowship over it. We should not let it get in our way. Um, I, if I found the evidence for evolution to be compelling, I'd be happy to accept it. I would just recognize that this was God at work Mm -hmm. and I just see evidence for it. I just don't think the evidence is compelling. I think the evidence offered is poor, and sometimes it's it's made up. They do what they can to sort of fictionalize it to make it look better than it does. And I think when you look at the evidence against evolution, it is so powerful that it, it literally takes almost blind faith to accept evolution in the face of this stuff. Um, that's that's that would be what what sometimes the unbeliever says about us. You, you're just you're just oh, yeah. blind faith. And it's I think really it takes loads it, more faith it, to be. Yeah, atheist. it's it's uh, really the other way around. Yeah, of course they don't like hearing that, but that's okay. We're not in this to win arguments. We're in this to hopefully uh, win hearts to God. And if this helps, sort of put a pebble in their shoe, makes their walk a little uncomfortable, so that in the quiet moments when they're by themselves, they suddenly start thinking, "Is my worldview really adequate?" Yeah. And maybe it turns a few hearts toward God, and yep. that's that's all we can hope for. Yeah. So now we're ready to turn towards the idea of revealed theology, 
um, begin talking about the Bible. Next time, why don't we start by just kind of saying, here's where we are. We've gotten through all this major piece. Let's sort of reflect back on where we've been. Let's spend some time just as a high level, sort of indexing some of the areas we want to talk about when it comes to the Bible. And then we'll jump into that topic after that. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things I've been asked is, you know, if, if there is a God, if we made the case for God, what's he doing? Did he has he communicated to us? Yeah, exactly. Because if he if he hasn't, yeah. then it's as if he's. And there are deists out there that say God wound the universe up and yep. walked away. Yep. And maybe he didn't, but I think he has. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And yeah. um, be looking forward to those conversations. Yeah, me, too. me too. All right. You've been listening to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. The James Group is a nonprofit Christ-centered organization that seeks to serve the community by offering skilled caring support for anyone in need. For help, call 972-243-4673. That's 972-243-4673. For questions and comments, email Galen at jamesgroupministries.net. That's G-A-L-O-N at jamesgroupministries.net. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Hacks for Life with Galen Jones.